Welcome to this week's From the Lighthouse podcast. I'm Michelle Hamadash, and today I'm joined in the studio by Adam Courtney, who's here to talk about his new book, The Ship That Never Was, an historical account of 10 convicts' incredible escape from Macquarie Harbour to South America on a stolen ship, the Frederick. Adam Courtney is a business journalist and editor working with the Sydney Morning Herald, Age, as well as UK Sunday Times. He's the son of writer Bryce Courtney and is the author of two books, The Amazon Men and his latest, The Ship That Never Was, published by ABC Books. Adam is also an adventurer, having climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and to Mount Everest Base Camp. Welcome, Adam. It's lovely to have you. Thank you, Michelle. Great to be here. What a rollicking story of adventure, ingenuity and survival the ship that never was is. Adam, can you share with our listeners some of the remarkable moments in the life of James Porter that make him such a wonderful protagonist? Look, I could tell you some of the moments, but it's more about, I think, the, the character and the fibre of the guy. I mean, if you if you look back at his very early childhood, you see a kid of 10 or 12 who was totally... Uh, self-motivated. He was totally someone who wanted to do his own thing. Um, you know, if the teacher told him he had to do something, uh, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. He was kind of, I don't know, everybody has, I can remember at class at school, everybody has a guy at the back who was always making jokes and always laughing about and never cared about the consequences. And I think that's James Porter. Um, so he fell in with the wrong crowd in London. Uh, you know, he's a South London kid. Um, but he wasn't going to be told anyone what to do, and he fell in with the wrong crowd, stole a timepiece, and they said, he's about 12 years old, we can't send you down, you can't be a convict, so we'll send you to sea. Now, I think that was the making of him, because throughout all his journals, he never seems to, I mean, they mastheaded him. He said he, he was mastheaded, which means he's put up the top of a mast and probably kept there for how many, who knows how many hours, how many, how many days, and it made him an incredibly tough guy. It also inculcated within himself a great rebellious streak um, and he, he was the sort of guy that never he, he couldn't be told what to do and there are periods where he would toe the line and there are periods where he wouldn't but the most interesting thing about him for me is that if ever he was under the command of someone who was corrupt and it could be a governor in Tasmania or it could be a ship's captain or anyone who was corrupt he just couldn't handle it he just could not handle the idea of being, uh, and he would always muck up. He would always try and escape. He would always do the wrong thing. But if he was under somebody he cared about or liked, he always towed the line. He was a perfect citizen. So I find him the most, uh, I find the most remarkable, I'm not really answering the question, the remarkable moments. But the, I think the remarkable thing about his character was how he could change from one to the other. Because he obviously felt that, um, the corruption and the things that were wrong with colonial society, he felt very strongly about. And whilst he didn't, you know, enunciate exactly or articulate exactly how he was going to do anything about it, he knew that he had to escape. And that was everything that from there, as soon as he became a convict, was about his freedom. Look, and I think that's one of the one of the impressions that really um, the the reader takes away from the book is it, it's it's that resourcefulness and it's the, the the perseverance because the consequences are you know that for escaping the consequences for rebelling are, um, were absolutely inhumane and I think it's it's a wonderful read in terms of giving the reader a, such a um, a visceral experience of what convict 
um, Australia, Van Diemen's Land, uh, Macquarie Harbour, um, what that period in history was like. Yeah, look, I mean, it's a perfect example is he hated the system and every time he, he, he infracted or caused an infraction, every time he infringed, he was, there was a, the Arthur had this, Governor Arthur was the Van Diemen Land governor. He had a very, very strict hierarchy. You do something wrong, you, you go down the snake, you do something right, you go up the ladder. But what Porter realised that is that the governor had all these spies about and spies may, not, may or may not have liked him. So he may have done 10 things right and then somebody dobbed him in for something and he goes right down the snake and he never gets up the ladder. And he realised that this particular, um, this particular society wanted to make sure that everybody stayed down. That's what I'm almost, I'm pretty sure, he doesn't articulate it, but his reaction to things tell me that this is what he thought, that this was a a society that wanted to, as I said, there's plenty of grease on the rungs, I think something like, so every time you try to go up the ladder, try to do the right thing, some little thing happens, a little minor thing, or somebody says, oh, I don't think he's, he did the right thing there, Porter. You go down and you become a worse, they, they clap you in chains, they put you on the road, gang. He found that he just didn't have a chance to, to get ahead. So he had to escape. Um, there's a, an old saying that in the days when, um, when ships were made of wood, men were made of steel. And I think that Porter was one of these guys. And he knew the consequences. He knew that if he fled, he would be sent to the worst place on earth, which was Macquarie Harbour. And of course, he couldn't handle the situation. He didn't like the society, and he fled. And the next thing I know, he gets caught. He's not a very good, he loves to escape, but he's not very good at escaping. He's actually quite bad at it, uh, in some ways, in some ways. But I think that um, he finds himself finally taken to Macquarie Harbour and it's the worst place on, in, in the world according to him. Uh, and I think according to, to most people. To, to most people. <laughs> yep. um, and, and of course he is part of a group who do the remarkable thing of stealing yep. a ship. Yep. Um, can you tell us a little bit well, about that? First, firstly it's, it's worth saying that Porter's solo efforts amounted to nothing. I mean, he tried to escape, I think, on three or four occasions on his own. And he must have realised that if he's really going to get away from this place, he's going to have to do it with some, well, some, a few other people. And what happened was he was very lucky. Porter was, in Macquarie Harbour, they were making ships. And, in, and of course, they were, he was asked to be one of the last ten people to create the last ship that was going to go off. And all the, all the convicts were being sent over to Port Arthur. Uh, and this this whole Macquarie Harbour was, this is 1833, and the whole Macquarie Harbour was going to be abandoned. But then he was asked to be one of 10 staying to finish this last ship, the Frederick. So there were 10 very well-practiced felons, including himself, that were being asked pretty much to, to, to finish the last, finish off the last ship and then sail it to, um, to Port Arthur, which is near, near, near Hobart. And of course, there were some pretty smart guys, including one guy called John Barker. Now, John Barker, pretty much everybody believes, is was the ringleader and the smart guy. He learned to navigate, not because he was a sailor, but he want, he knew that he was going to escape somehow, and he knew the only way to escape from Van Diemen's Land was by sea. So he asked another convict how to navigate. So he learned how to navigate uh, using a quadrant um, uh, just on dry land. So they had a navigator and a captain, that was John Barker. And of course, Porter was good at all the rough stuff. So Porter, 
in the taking of the ship, they all assigned each other various ways. There were 10 of the convicts, there were four soldiers that were looking after them, and there were the captain and the shipwright, who was the maker of the, the obviously in charge of making the ship, and one other first mate, and I think maybe two other small servants. So I think it amounted to 19. So there was 10 convicts and nine free men, quote unquote. So they concocted the plan. They were in the, they were in, the, there was more of them after all than there were actual soldiers. And it was a pretty smart plan too. It was all about diversionary tactics. You know, uh, they made sure that certain people were in certain, away from the boat when they did, when they, when they did the actual hijacking. And Porter, he, he, he makes it sound in his memoirs like he was the smart man behind it, but it wasn't. It was Barker. Barker was the one who started it from the beginning. Look, there's there's such um, audaciousness, mm. I think, in, in, in that plan. And I think it's one of the things that the story also captures is the degree to which uh, there was something singular about uh, England's um, oppressive regime to the extent that when these men make that incredible voyage to land in um, Valdivia in, in Chile... They're actually met, um, first of all, with great hospitality, but also the prevailing idea was that it was so barbaric the way that they'd been treated and incommensurate with the crimes that it would actually be a crime to hand them back to such a barbaric authority. You have to understand the Chileans' way of thinking. They had um, been oppressed under the Spanish for many years. And funnily enough, I'm told, although I haven't been able to check this historically, that Valdivia was a site of convicts in Spanish convicts. So there was actually a convict, funnily enough, there'd been convicts in Valdivia. So this is, they went 6,000 miles across the ocean. How they did it is, I mean, I've, I've read the Porter Journal and I'm trying, I've spoken to several sailors and people say it's just almost unbelievable. Well, um, I think particularly because the boat wasn't corked and so they're actually yeah, yeah. physically having to bail out, exactly. meaning that at least but a proportion the, of the Throughout crew... the entire period, there was two, two people had to bail out and only one of the, um, one, one of the uh, areas, uh, there was two sides of the ship you could bail out and one of them was blocked. So they could only, they could only bail out from one area. So they were sort of at, <laughs> it was at all kinds of disadvantages. So there were 10 men who, find, who stole the boat and only I think only five of them were actually seamen. So uh, there was, and and the other five were sick most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 then the navigator too. He hardly ever got up and navigated. Uh, so half the time there was a ship being sailed without it. Was really not really a navigator. And 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 so it. But they they held a line and they made it through somehow. But you haven't answered what you were saying in Valdivia. They were treated like they were treated like. Human like beings, hero, human beings. Yeah. yes, that would be a nice thing. They, I think these guys had been 10, 12 years being treated like... Less than human. Le, less than human. Mm. As I was saying, the Chileans um, had, had, had known about convicts, but not just about... They'd been under the Spanish for, I think, 150 years, even up to then, or maybe 130 years. may have been longer than that, actually. They knew about being under a European power, and suddenly these 10 scraggly men come from a place that never heard of western tasmania but the fact is they knew who they were they understood that the european the big european nations whether that be spain or England, oppressed various people and so these 10 people come into their midst and they call them bandidos enamorados which means i think it actually means bandits in love but what i think it sort of means is beloved bandits they they, they were and and they 
empathised with these people because they saw themselves as bandits who, who had cut themselves away from the Spanish yoke. They saw themselves as, they used, they, they used the word patriots, and, th and that was a different meaning to what it is today. Patriots, patriotic is, what they meant was that they were rebel patriots from the, from the, mother, from the mother countries. So they saw themselves as rebels. Here were ten rebels in their midst. Um, they said, these are our kind of people. And here's a case example of what I was talking about in the beginning of what I found interesting. In those two years that James Porter was in Valdivia, there is no sign that he ever did anything wrong, stole anything, um, uh, hit anybody, because he was treated like a human being. In fact, he was revered. And he was asked to do things that people wanted, because he was skillful. He was a skillful sailor. Uh, I think he'd known his carpentry by then. He was just a handy kind of a guy who'd been around boats and building things. He was in great demand, and he was beloved over there. But, of course, the British the British weren't going to let them go. <laughs> the British weren't going to let them be. You know, I think every part of the reader is sort of wanting, um, you know, sort of the arrival at Valdivia to, to be the happy ending because yeah. it's it's just... Would that it was, but it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> just because it's almost unimaginable that, um, you know, sort of such a, 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 a feat... It could be achieved yeah. and and still not be look, the end I, thing. I, I will yeah, be I honest, know. my heart was sort of sinking to see that there was still so much of the book left mm. at that point because <laughs> you it thought, was just... You wanted a happy ending. Well, this is the difference between fiction and non-fiction, I think, is probably the best way of putting it. I had to follow... Um, you have to follow what he said was in the journals, whether you liked it or not. And the difficulty, of course, is to make that into a good story, but Porter's story of going off there what happened to him in Valdivia, which was actually quite quite fairly easy for him compared to what his other part of his life. Um, but the British just would not give up because they this was just coming up to Victorian times and they were the biggest power on earth and becoming even bigger and stronger. If they were to allow 10 convicts to just have a nice time in, in, uh, in Valdivia and become part of that society, they would say to anybody um, that, you can pirate a ship, that's okay. You can escape being a convict. They just couldn't allow it to happen. It just, because it would create too much of a expedient, you know, they just not it's a, it's a It's a precedent. It's a precedent that they couldn't have. Um, it was interesting, uh, it was very, very funny, funny. This is one of the quirks of it. Charles Darwin uh, came to the island at that time. And he saw these convicts and he made a few remarks. He didn't actually talk. We don't know if he ever talked and said hello or anything because he never said that he did. And Darwin says, oh, and, and this is what I found, you know, Darwin we all say is a great naturalist, but he thought he saw them working peacefully and he saw them in the fields doing work or I think making making ships, which they were all good at, and said, you know, um, I don't think this is good enough. Um, these people are, you know, a bunch of scallywags. And then... When he went back to Hobart in 1836, a couple of years later, after this, he said, oh, the assignment system works brilliantly in Hobart because, and it was, it was obviously, it's okay to be assigned to British people, but it's not okay to be assigned to Chileans. And, and I found that rather ridiculous. I, but, I was know, actually disappointed. I was disappointed too when I read that. But um, I thought because here's a man who's come up with a theory of evolution, you know, mm -hmm. who's completely and utterly turning the world over in exactly. his in his claim. But he was still an upper class gentleman and he still believed in the system. So, he, you know, he may have started something amazing, but he still couldn't help. He said, if it, these are convicts, they're a bunch of rapscallions, they're being, they're being treated 
too well by the, the natives or whatever, the Chilean natives. Uh, and, and of course, but that's a, it's Na okay. Natural selection no, obviously no, doesn't no. apply. <laughs> to, no, natural selection. Well put, yeah. To humans. Um, but look, yeah, I think I've probably gone off, off your question. But um, yeah, I think w w what I wanted to say was that I, I, I find it amazing that if you're if you are beloved and looked after and treated, even if you're the worst kind of convict and treated as a human being, as you, as you said, you just slip into society and told me everything I needed to know about how do we treat people who have, who have offended. Uh, you don't treat them like, like idiots. Or whatever. Well, you know, it's, it's well, insight into um, domination, isn't it? Because yeah, exactly. it was very much a sort of a, 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 a totalizing domination yeah. where the, the psyche as much as I mean, anything. If you look at James Porter and you look what happened to him, it's almost a case study in how do you treat uh, he was definitely a felon. Let's not say that he was a nice. He's not wasn't one of these convicts. James Porter was a was a naughty boy. I think is what he did. He did the things that he that was said. He wasn't one of these guys who stole a crust of bread because his family was starving. He enjoyed mucking, ducking and diving about. He enjoyed larking about, and he would steal. And he, you know, he actually had a few dust ups with people. He wasn't a perfect guy by any means. But if you give him the responsibility, and he became a kind of gentleman over there. They were they they called him Don Don um, what's James Don Santiago is what they call him, which is an almost formal way of saying Mr. James or something along those lines. If you treat someone with respect, look what you could become of that person. Look, the monstrosity of the penal system, but then, of course, on top of that, um, because the book also captures the genocide yeah. of the Indigenous people, which was yeah. just, you know, I think reading that, because whatever, yeah. um, you know, whatever despicable treatment convicts were experiencing yeah. um, relative to the decimation of, of the indigenous people there. Oh, it was just terrible. Um, I mean, there's, 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 there's really some, I mean, ironic, sad ironies. Um, very At the very time that the convicts were being evacuated to go to Port Arthur from um, um, Macquarie Harbour, was the same time that they were uh, evicting the Aborigines from their land. So funnily enough, the Aborigines, the Western, the Aborigines in the West were all being corralled into Macquarie Harbour. So you had a bunch of convicts at one point with a bunch of Aborigines, and they were both leaving, but for totally different reasons. And of course, the Aborigines were corralled and sent over to Flinders Island, um, and most of them died. Um, the stories. You know, I didn't want. I didn't want to tell too much of that story because I don't think it was right. But it's not. It's another story completely. But I think it's interesting. That, but without it, yeah, it would and, have been and, a terrible omission in terms. It, of it would the be time. wrong because they were there with the convicts at the very year that they were all passing through and leaving, and 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 by all accounts, there was an interesting account. The convicts treated them despicably. The Aborigines that they saw, they had to be moved away from everybody because you'd think maybe the convicts might have understood. These people are oppressed, but it's a different time. They well, found I think it's also the psychology of, 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 of humans that yeah. um, where, however low you are, um, you will be more despicable if you possibly can. Um, yeah. And I, 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 I think the, the sort of um, treatment... You know, I'd love to have heard of redeeming things of convicts helping Aborigines because they're both in such dire straits, but I've not heard any accounts of that. Uh, but that was a very strange irony that they were there at the same time. And the Aborigines were sent to Grummet Island, 
at first, as I understand it, where the, the worst convicts were originally sent, which is a little, it's just, there was Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour, and there's Grumman Island where the worst offenders were put. So eventually most of the convicts were sent on, back to Sarah Island and properly housed. But what do they do, the Aborigines that are passing through, that, that they put them on Grumman Island, which is just, it's just a little rocky outcrop. It's and they wicked. started dying there, of course, of diseases and things, because they were, of course, they didn't have any, the, the white man would, bring a flu to them and they would they would die like flies it was it's just a terrible story you know? the, um, I mean it, it really um, Governor Arthur just has to go down in history as, oh as look he's a genius the... look it's you know what I call it what they did to the Aborigines in the West is is it was terrible what happened throughout Tasmania but what he was doing there was pre-cleansing that's what I call it I, I don't know if this I hate using the word cleansing, ethnic cleansing. It he was, was genocide. Well, it was genocide. It was they hadn't. These people hadn't even. They were in so far away. They weren't even encroaching on past on pastoral land. But they knew at some point somebody would want that land. So let's cleanse them now before the other was more about skirmishes because people were trying to expand and the Aborigines. At least there was a confrontation. There was no confrontation with the West. They just took them. They just took them. And that's what's so just despicably sad about it yeah uh, and, and and i mean i, I think it's it was a, it, it it was a, you, there was no way of telling the story of of um of tasmania without no you can't it was all happening a, this is a very se, uh, seminal is the right word i don't know but it was a very important part this when the, the time that porter went through was exactly the time of the genocide it was a high point of when the of convictism in in uh, um, in Tasmania. There was a lot of very and effectively under the rule of a dictator. Yeah, and he was. They say Arthur. There's no man has ever had as much power. No political leader has ever had as much power as George Arthur did in in. And he 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 knew everything. He knew he would have known who Porter was. He would have known who. They say he had an eye for minutia. He knew every, pretty much every mm. convict, and he knew at what stage they were up and the snakes and ladders thing. And if he wanted to send somebody to Macquarie Harbour for no reason, i.e., he didn't like the look of the guy, he just sent them. You didn't have to escape. Ostensibly, it was for those who had second offenders who had tried to escape. Then you get sent to Macquarie Harbour, which is the the worst. But he would send people because he felt like it. How did you first come across this story? Yeah. Um, I, it's funny because it, it came. I was. I had an actor friend by the name of John Eastman who was played the James Porter in the role um, in in, and it's been running now the play since the eighties. It's been in Western Tasmania in Strawn uh, since about the early nineties. He was the first guy to play James Porter. He was just an old friend, and he said, "Oh, have you ever heard about this play, The Ship That Never Was?" And I thought, "What a great name for a play, <laughs> you know, The Ship That Never Was." And he told me about the story and the little the, and the and the sort of twist at the end, which I'm not sure we talk about. Well, we, well, we can well talk I about. think we should leave that to tantalise <laughs> okay. um, readers. But um, there is a twist, so it does. Yeah, anyway, he told me about it, and I just thought this is a great story. I approached several agents about this. I wanted to start writing about in my mid 40s, which is roughly eight, nine, ten years ago. Not quite ten years ago, and I, I really—it was one of the stories I wanted to tell because it had been done by an English woman, uh, Sean Reese did it, and I think she did a very good job. And I'm not. I, this is the last place I want to say anything about another author, but it didn't, to me, have an Australian voice. It was done by an English woman who did a brilliant job. Who was a great expert at ships, by the way. Her knowledge of ships is just incredible. But I don't know if she really captured the zeitgeist of the Arthur regime. And the more I read about it, I thought, I've got to try and 
send this, sell this to an, uh, an agent uh, and then to hopefully to a publisher. But nobody wanted it. I for it went to eight or nine, ten agents. They said, no, not interested. Um, and I thought, this is a great play. It's been running for 20-something years. It, it tracks hundreds of people. And they're telling me that this isn't going to be an interesting story for people. Because people come to Strawn in the summer all the time. And they see this play and they go and see Macquarie Harbour. And I said, no, I'm not going to believe that. So finally, I got lucky. I wrote a book called Amazon Men. It's totally different. We won't go there. But it came to the attention of somebody at ABC Books, um, my publisher, Jude McGee, and she liked it very much. They weren't going to publish it. It wasn't right for them, but they loved the writing in it. And I got lucky. They said, well, what do you got? And I said, well, I, I offered them four ideas thinking this one wouldn't make it because everybody told me it wouldn't You'd make so it. Discouraged. Uh, I was so discouraged. And they said, they said yes to all four, but then the marketing people weren't, they just didn't think it would work for me as a first time writer, the ideas that I had. And I said, I think this was the fourth or fifth. It might have been the fourth, actually. I said, well, I got this idea about about this thing happening in Western Tasmania. There's been a play going on. And I, I sent them, a, I think, maybe a five or six paragraph pricey. And within 10 minutes, they'd given me the nod. And they said, yes. Obviously, says that somebody finally saw the potential of this book. A great Australian story that wasn't Burke and Wills or... Uh, this is the thing. I think there are so many... Australian stories that haven't been told because they're not the big ones, the Ned Kellys, the Burke and Wills. And that's what I hope to... That she said, I want you to be... This is my publisher. She said, I want you to be the, the storyteller of quirky Australian stories like this. I think it's probably quirky. I don't know. But not the big ones. I don't want to write about Burke and Wills. It's been done by all World War One or all the Australian... I want to write about things that people have forgotten but have a larger historical context. And this is all about Tasmania at a certain period where we had the genocide, we had all these things happening, and it's also about the British Empire, how it deals with people like this. It was about a certain period. And I want a, I want a small story, but that can be broadened out into a much bigger panoply, if you like. Because there's a tremendous amount of research that went yeah. into this yes, story yes. and then I think sifting through a very complex narrative because in as although we are holding off on giving mm. the twist etc <laughs> um, right. you know I think I think we can certainly talk about the fact that there was an, an immensely sort of complicated story to to sort of turn yeah I mean James Porter did two he, he had two memoirs first was done when he was he was well, that we should tell you, he was captured from Valdivia, sent back to Van Diemen's land and placed in prison. And he wrote it from there. And what, because the in prison, it was, the, the, the verdict wasn't very clear. So he was placed in prison while they awaited, awaited well, the sentencing. So I won't go too much into that, except to say that he wrote there to sort of save himself. And he went into the newspapers and he came across as the nice guy. And of course, they were not, there was something that says, because when they stole the Frederick, they took over the Frederick. The other, the other nine people were put ashore with more than half the food, and they made it to they made it to, to civilization, and they were fine. Nobody died. Nobody was hurt. There was very little violence in the taking of the ship, and there was a lot of sympathy for Porter and 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 the people who who. So he wanted to extract as much sympathy as he possibly could. So he said, "This is how we did it." So that was the first. Um, the first uh, telling of his tale, which is more, he wanted to say this is what happened, and then later he was in, um, later he he went to Lord Howe Island and he was asked 
by a very forward-thinking commandant, the place Alexander McConaughey, to write his life story. And that's the one that I've mostly used uh, because it starts from when he was born in 1802 and all the way through pretty much to, to not quite to the, not to the end of his life, but up to time of 1841, 42 in uh, Lord Howe Island. And it tells, I think... I think he, he makes himself out to be a bit of a superhero. There's no doubt. He wants to he wants the reader to, to know that he's a good guy and that nothing was ever his fault and all that kind of thing. But it's a more true account um, of, of what happened. And that's that's on what mostly on what I base it. So you've got that, and then you've got so many other you've got to weave in what did Tasman what did Hobart look like? What what were the ships like? What uh, what what made Hobart tick? What was the system like? What do the houses look like? And that's what makes this difficult. I could just, a lot of people have told the Porter story in very short form. It's been done in short, but no one's done the entire, other than, of course, Sean Reese, who did it very well. Um, they, you have, the research is so difficult because I can't say Porter walked from A to B without knowing exactly where, what A is and what B is. And you have to know the entire, if he walks from one place to another, which he says he does in certain Thing. You have to know exactly the road he was on, what the road looked like, what was on that road, how, what, what, what you know, what, and, and there are other things. There's a court case that I explain. What did my publishers say? That's fine, you've done the court case, but what were people wearing? What were their reactions? It's that imaginative recreation, so, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's, it's, you have to, I could say Porter walked from this street to this street, but I have to know that there was a bank there or a church there or, or something else. And if he stays in a prison, what does that prison look like? And that's where things get very difficult because you can't, if you want to be a valid non-fiction writer, you really have to be as detailed as you possibly can. A lot of fiction writers do that too. Don't, don't get me wrong, um, but you've got to be. The very, contract is different. Though, it's a it's it? a different one. You, you know, the, the the fiction writers can get a very good sense, and yes, they have to probably know A to B as well. Um, but they can go beyond that. I can't. I can't go beyond what what is what is the possible. But then you then you can. There are some creative things you can do. Um, you know, you can. For instance, they asked me what the smells were like. Now, I wasn't there in 1833 or 84. I don't know. But I know there was lots of whale oil being manufactured on the ports. On the port. So when he comes into the harbour, I make a point of saying you could smell the, the whale oil wafting from the harbour uh, in, in Hobart. Now, that's a complete lie. I don't know if they could smell it on that day, but that's the sort of thing you're allowed, you're kind of allowed to do because there was whale oil being manufactured. Now, that, that's fiction. Um, but it's based on what was happening at the time. Uh, so it makes it difficult. You've got to try and create a scene, and he tells you part of the scene, but then I have to fill in all the gaps. Now, the, the gaps that I fill in might be semi-fictional. I, I, he kicked this way. Or did I don't know if he kicked left or right, or he said this. Or he, and they, I, You can't, for, of course, put speech into people's name unless you know that it's been said. So it makes it very difficult, is what I'm saying, um, well, I but, think one of the great qualities of the book is that you didn't make it feel difficult. You know, that for the reader, um, you know, there was a wonderful sense of mm. story and pace. Well, and I think much. also, <laughs> you know, you really did, um, you know, I think you put the cues in to allow us to know the moments when you were... Uh, Extrapolating, use, perhaps? Well, <laughs> but no, actually just giving us the benefit of, of an atmosphere or yeah. um, an immersive experience 
and I think you did it with a lot of concrete details that made uh, us um, sort yeah, of look, make and, it a, an enjoyable read. And look, you may, um, often I don't know people haven't made that many comparisons with this in my father's writing, uh, but he did always say that character is the most important thing, and he used a lot of fine detail. To, he built a scene beautifully, and may, he maybe I, I, he didn't actually teach me, but I think I learned from him reading. I had to read all twenty-one of his books. I, you I wasn't, did. I did. Yeah, I wasn't allowed not to, uh, <laughs> but I could see how he built a, built a story. So if I've got, he can use that in fictional. I have to use what I've got in the non-fiction sense, knowing this scene happened. How do I build that scene? So if it feels fictional, perhaps yes, it has rubbed off. I've been able to build that sense of. Um, uh, you know, attention within a real context, not an unreal one. And if I'm doing that, then then if that's working, then I, I've done what I came to do, really, I think, because <laughs> that's what I want to do. I want to be able to create that sort of tension and build a beautiful story, but in the confines of reality, as yeah. best I possibly can. Look, no, I, I think without a doubt um, that's achieved in in the ship that was, and I, I think that the um, the element of character, and I think there's a certain fidelity on your part to capturing a, a, a character yeah. in um, James Porter, which was really that indomitable spirit, wasn't it? That yeah. no matter how many times um, he was brought down, yeah. um, there was this that man never. This man to, never. You asked originally the remarkable thing about him. It's just that someone can take so much punishment so often and still be laughing about. And I actually think, I don't know this, but I will say it, that he had um, an imperviousness to, to pain. I think that maybe uh, he talks about being whipped on several occasions and he just said, oh, well, it happened. He doesn't say I was in... An, actually, no, there is one on a ship he does say it was terrible uh, because he was... On a ship, there is a situation where he's chained together with his best mate Billy Shires, and he said it was. I can't tell you how unbelievably terrible it was. It's the first time he's really emoted about how the pain and or what he was going through. But he gets whipped all the time, and he just it's almost as if he laughs it off. Uh, you know, he's. I think there's an imperviousness to pain that he had, uh, which allowed him to. It was a survival mechanism. Or perhaps the banality of pain. Yeah. Um, you know, there there is that very uh, because we're. I mean, we live in a time largely where corporal punishment, etc. It, it doesn't exist. No. Um, any form of 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 pain. But having exists. a clip around the year old was was something kids and young men had all the time. Or punch ups and things like that. They do it all the time. So maybe you're right. It was it was just part of a normal day's dusting up, <laughs> something along those lines. Or something that perhaps um, wasn't likely to capture the interest of uh, his audience um, but it, it, it is just uh, and I think that's where um, so much of the fascination comes from is looking back at a remote time isn't it where yeah. you see how differently uh, humans experience the world around them um, yeah I mean we're not we're not the same creatures that we were 150 200 years ago um, I, I think I don't know how this comes out but I think we, we Life is a lot easier, put it that way, and we're a bit softer, <laughs> quite a bit softer. <laughs> I remember my history teacher saying to me when I was about 14, he said, we today could not deal with what men of yesterday, men of, men and women, of course, I, mean, I want to make this, men and women of yesteryear had to deal with. We just would be incapable. And I think Port is a classic example of that. You, well, just the working day. Yeah, I, I think the length of that working day when he was... What, um, when he was in Macquarie Harbour, he, he, he this is what he was... He was given gruel to start, and he had to... Then 
he was given this, I think it was just, um, uh, it was virtually nothing, salt and um, dough of some sort. And that's what he would start the day with. Uh, he, and he would have to row 10 miles and then start cutting trees down. He wouldn't be fed again till 6 or 7 o'clock at night. After he rowed back and had a full day's work and they weren't allowed to stop for lunch, he didn't have a lunch break, they just kept on. And how he just kept going, and, but of course, you know, and I detail in the book, men just went out, even then, men were going out of their minds because it was just too hard. Uh, and people tried to escape, and some of them tried to escape by killing other people, because that's the only way they could be hung, was, it, was by going back to, 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 um, to Hobart and being tried and hung. They, they would do that. They would kill someone because they couldn't stand the life that they were. And Porter's, he must have been one of the toughest there, too, because he, he handled it. It's exceptional, isn't it? It's the it's, exceptionality oh, of, it's just, of, of, of that I mean, character. And so that alone makes him in an outstanding character. Um, and, you know... Anyway, it, Look, it, I ver I, I'm tantalised by the idea that you had additional ideas for stories, and I'm also by the yeah. the, the sort of the, the fact that you're actually interested in those lesser yeah. told stories. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I'll, I'll, this one hasn't been agreed to, so it may not ever happen. But um, I ask people this, and I'll ask you, Michelle, who was the first person to fly in Australia, fly a plane? Oh, I, I don't know. I get all kinds of people. Yeah, asking yeah, them. yeah. No one believes us when I tell them. It was Harry Houdini, the escapologist. Nobody knows this. You're going to hear it now. Yeah, wow. Um, great story. I, I loved Houdini. This is totally different, okay? But it's another story from Australian history that has been a little bit, well, more than a little bit forgotten. Um, Houdini was asked out by Australian government in 1909, 1910, around this time, because the Australians wanted to have an air force. And the Japanese, of course, were thinking of having it. This is just in the first, less people had only had flied less, flown less than a decade before. So America they'd flown, in Europe they'd flown, but they hadn't flown in Australia. So Houdini wanted to be the first to do everything. So he was asked to come out, be the first person to fly in Australia. So the story revolves around him coming out, this big thing, Houdini's coming to Australia, rah, 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 he's the greatest scopologist. And of course he was going to do all these escape tricks. He was going to jump into the Yarrow with, with, with irons on. He was going to escape from milk cans. But the big thing he came for was to be the first person to fly. So it was all rah, rah, rah. So the government wanted him as a big star to say, look, this is what happens when you fly in a plane. No one has seen a plane in Australia. And he's going to do all these. He's going to go to Rose Hill race course and, and do all this. Then there was another Australian guy, he was just a backyard mechanic type bloke, who ordered a plane from overseas. And the story goes that the the Australian guy got there and got up and flew for five minutes the day before Houdini. But, of course, this isn't what the Australian government wanted. They wanted Houdini to be the first man to fly. <laughs> I love these stories because they're quirky, um, but it's also, you can bring in, for instance, the history of Australia it was scared of war was coming. Everybody knew it. What was happening in the history of aviation at that time? Story of Houdini, um, Eric Weiss was his uh, earliest, was his real name. The story of an Australian battler who tried to beat Houdini to get there and the, the controversy over who was the first person to fly. His name was Fred Cuthbertson and he is the one that really was the first one to fly, but it's not in the record books because Houdini, having heard that Cuthbertson was the first one, got five people to verify that he was, if anyone went up the next day. And so the record books 
it's all it's a very contentious thing but the story will be based on who was the first to fly and who was the really the first one person to fly and I probably told you too much already. No, look, that, I do hope that that is a story that comes into being, and and it's really. They've got to say yes. So that's that's the idea. So, re- listeners have yeah. had the first. Plan. Look, this is your perfect opportunity to comment on um, from the lighthouse and encourage Adam to get yeah. this story underway. Yeah, so tell them there that, we go. That's I think a, I think it's a great um, story, and um, uh, if I can do it properly, and I think it's got lots of historical goodies in it. And I'd like to do it, but publisher might not say yes. So. <laughs> Look, let's see if we can uh, generate uh, so, some responses there. Um, would you be so kind as to read uh, some paragraphs from the ship that was just to finish okay. our podcast off? Because uh, I think there's nothing nicer than having a story read aloud and it would be a great honour. Okay, I'm going to have to half sing in one bit of this, okay, <laughs> for you. Uh, I'm just, where we are in this particular, they're just about to take over the ship, and I'll just read a few, few parts about um, them about to take over the ship and how they, and, and just the beginnings of how they did it. Russen and Leslie moved into position. Russen placed himself about 10 feet in front of the soldier at the windlass, while Leslie nonchalantly appeared to be working at the soldier's rear. The other six conspirators clambered below decks, ostensibly to listen to the song. Tor and Hoy were sitting in the aft cabin, well away from the party, apparently drinking while they waited for the convict servant William Nichols to make their supper. While Porter was singing, Fair and Barker returned to the deck. Porter recalled later that he was so scared he could hardly get through the song. I could not get on, he wrote. My mind was in such a state. And this is how he sang. As Mars and Minerva were viewing some implements, Bologna stepped forward and asked the news. Or were they repairing those warlike instruments that are now growing rusty for want to be used? The money is withdrawn and our trade is diminishing, for mechanics are wandering without shoes or hose. Come stir up the wars and our trade will be flourishing. This grand conversation was under the rose. At the word rose, Russell and Leslie darted at the soldier on the windlass from two sides. In another few seconds, Barker and Fair, coming up from the cabin, were also upon him. All the soldier saw were three sharp axes looming a few inches from his face. He didn't bother to struggle. After gagging him, Barker stamped his foot on the deck, the signal for the next phase. Shires had been spoiling for a fight for ages, and when the heavy thud came from above, there was no holding him back. The second soldier, halfway through enjoying his rum, never had more than a few seconds to react. Shires came at him fist first. Before the hapless corporal knew what was happening, the other convicts had pinned him down. Any move now, boy, and you won't see the next daybreak, Shires told him his axe hovering just above the soldier's face. Thank you so much, Adam. That was a real treat. Um, That's The Ship That Was by Adam Courtney. And thank you very much for joining us this week. That's it from, from The Lighthouse. Thank you very much.